Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a doctor explains how the era of one-size-fits-all anti-cancer treatment is giving way to the era of personalized treatment. In the United States, at any one time, there's maybe a million to a million and a half people living with clinically advanced cancer. And for 50 years, we gave them essentially the same treatment. Between targeted therapy and immunotherapy, now I think we can customize the treatment and improve the outcome in at least 40% every year. Plus, we'll hear from a physical therapist and an adaptive design coordinator about their recent trip to Ecuador. We wanted to see, uh, specifically with spina bifida, what similarities and differences there were in each culture. So we paired up and kind of did yeah, a technological collaboration project over this past summer. All that, along with a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear about a mission trip to Ecuador meant to share adaptive design practices. But first, a doctor explains how the modern era of cancer treatment is becoming more personalized and what you need to do if you receive a diagnosis of cancer, but it's not clear where it began. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. More and more, cancer treatment is transitioning from one-size-fits-all toward an era of personalized treatment based on an individual patient's cancer characteristics or their biomarkers. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio to help us understand this is Dr. Jeffrey Ross. He's the Jones Rohner Professor of Pathology and Urology at Upstate, and he's also the Medical Director of Foundation Medicine in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Ross. Pleasure to be here. So let's start by describing one-size-fits-all versus personalized treatments. What's the difference? The difference is if you think of cancer like going to get a new pair of shoes, you wouldn't go to a shoe store which had only one size, and after you picked out the one you wanted, it said, well, this is size 9. If you've got a small foot, it's going to be big, and if you've got a big foot, it's going to be small, but this is the best we can do, as opposed to we're going to measure your foot first, see what size it is, and then the shoes we're going to add, see if you like will be ones that have been custom designed for you and you only as ones that will fit you. So that sounds just inherently like that would be much better for, for In, cancer indeed, treatment. Indeed, we've had really almost a half a century of treating cancer one size fits all using, this is advanced cancer, of course. I'm not talking about cancer that the surgeons treat and cure, but the cancer that the surgeons unfortunately either could never cure because it presented too late or that unfortunately recurred or relapsed again after the surgery and now has spread to multiple sites in the body. This kind of what we sometimes call a clinically advanced cancer. And in the United States at any one time, there's maybe a million to a million and a half people living with clinically advanced cancer. And for 50 years, we gave them essentially the same treatment, a mixture of different cytotoxic drugs, hoping that the cancer cells would be killed and the normal cells would recover from being killed. Um, and this was the one size fits all. Everyone starts with this chemotherapy, maybe with or without radiation treatment. 
And then when the disease progressed, a different chemotherapy regimen was tried, but there was never any attempt to measure the shoe size, never trying to find out why did this cancer progress? Why is it moving ahead of the therapy? Is there any Achilles heel in that shoe of trying to match the cancer to the treatment that could kill the cancer cells without killing the normal cells? And that's the whole new modern era of personalized cancer care, or you could call it uh, individualized cancer care. So um, this kind of applies to p patients who have cancer, but it's advanced. Therefore, it's advanced. I mean, patients with many cancers are going to get cured readily by the primary treatment. The ones that come to mind, of course, are breast cancer and prostate cancer, which have 80 and 90 percent cure rates for all the patients. If you're if it's caught early. Caught early, or even because the therapy is so effective early. Wow. But unfortunately, uh, those are very frequent cancers. More than 200,000 new Americans develop breast and prostate cancer, women and men, a year. And even though 80 to 90% of the patients are going to be cured by the surgery and maybe with other treatment, that 10 to 15% of so that aren't create 40 to 50,000 new relapsed advanced cancers a year. And that's uh, a big, big challenge for us to try to help those patients. So what happens nowadays for someone who come in and they're diagnosed with cancer and their doctor can't tell them where it started? So this is a different type of cancer called cancer of unknown primary site or site of origin. It's more common than you'd actually think. Some studies say around 5%, some say as high as 7% of cancer is CUP, cancer of unknown primary site. It's a major dilemma for the patient, the patient's family, and the doctors. We know you have surgically incurable cancer. There's no organ we can take out. There's no place we can operate to rid your body entirely of the cancer. It's in multiple places. But we don't know what the starting place was. Is it colon cancer? Is it stomach cancer? Is it liver cancer? Is it lung cancer? We just can't figure it out with the common tests that we use, which are a combination of the pathology laboratories, uh, special procedures, trying to find the site of origin, and the radiology departments doing imaging and scanning, trying to find shadows and, and uh, abnormalities that might show where it started. So sometimes it remains a mystery. It remains a mystery after both the radiology doesn't show it and the pathology department is uncertain. Pathology department may give a, a list of possibilities, but it's not willing to pick one over the other, and that's when you get called CUP. CUP, and so what is happening um, primarily at uh, academic medical centers like Upstate? What is happening with some of those patients today? Well, we're in a, we're in a transition. For years, we spent a lot of our resources, a lot of money, trying to find the primary both with a lot of scans, a lot of tests in the pathology laboratory, even new molecular tests trying to find where it started. And despite all of that, we had no impact on how long the patients lived from the time they were diagnosed to the time that they passed away from the disease. 
And it's a very, very unfortunate, really dismal uh, prognosis when the best we can tell the patient is you have an 11% chance of living a year. Uh, we want to do much better than that. So more recently, and investigators, doctors, uh, scientists, and even the patients themselves have started to ask, why do we spend all of the money trying to find out where my cancer started when that won't help me live longer? Why don't we find out what's driving my cancer to progress and why will it be not responsive to chemotherapy? And is there a therapy my cancer might respond to based on all we know from the studies on the patients whose cancers we did know where they started, the breast and the lung and the prostate and the colon. I just want to know what are my drivers? What's making my cancer grow and progress? And do you have treatment that can target that? And if I fell into that category, maybe I will live more than a year. Maybe I'll live two or three and then there'll be a better drug for what my driver is and I can keep going and maybe I can never get cured but then again, I can live along with my disease, just like my friends and neighbors and family members who have diseases like asthma and rheumatoid arthritis and uh, ulcerative colitis and these kind of diseases where they're never completely cured, but they get put into remission by their therapy and they live along with their disease. That's what we want to do to CUP. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Jeffrey Ross about the modern era of cancer treatment, which is more and more often including something called tumor DNA sequencing. So that's what you're talking about for these patients who have cancer of unknown primary, right? Yes. I mean, this idea of the driver really means a mutation in a gene that's associated with cancer progression. And there's two basic kinds of driver mutations. And it does fit very nicely into this idea of driving a car. You've got the oncogene, which is the foot on the gas pedal. An oncogene drives the cancer faster by making the cancer engine run more hot and quick. And then the other type of driver is the foot on the brake, the tumor suppressor gene. This one functioning right slows the cancer down and prevents it from spreading. So your cancer can be driven by either or or a combination of genes that are putting too much pressure on the gas pedal and genes that are preventing you from putting pressure on the brake. So how do you find out which one you have? DNA sequencing has become essentially the standard for this as of today and for the foreseeable future. The same DNA that's removed from people when they want to find out their ancestry is instead not taken from their normal healthy cells, like DNA ancestry is, but instead taken from their cancer cells. And looking for where the sequence, the actual DNA sequence, the, the handbook of the coding is normal and where it's not normal. And where it's not normal, finding out whether these mutations, or what we also call genomic alterations, are associated not only with cancer progression, but have actual drugs on the market or in research clinical trials that are targeting that gene and trying to turn it off, which is the vast majority of our new cancer drugs. We're far, far, far more successful in developing drugs to turn off the oncogene, to stop the foot on the gas pedal, 
but so far we don't have good approaches to trying to reapply the foot on the brakes, meaning to reestablish the function of the mutated tumor suppressor genes. Maybe someday we'll be able to do that, but right now the vast majority of cancer research is designed to turn off the oncogenes, the cancer-causing genes, rather than to turn back on the cancer-preventing genes. So this DNA sequencing, this is not something that everyone who has a cancer diagnosis needs? No. I mean, for some cancer types, like breast and prostate cancer, the vast majority of patients, way more than three-fourths, up into the 80s for breast and into the 90s for prostate, are going to be cured by their primary treatment. They never need this sequencing because they never need systemic therapy beyond the standard of care for breast, which we call adjuvants for some patients, and sometimes for prostate, but usually not. So we don't do it for cured patients whose primary treatment worked. If you have colon cancer and the surgeon removes the part of your colon with cancer, and five years later, there's still no evidence of the disease, you got cured. We got there in time, and we don't need to sequence anything. Do you need to sequence everyone who has a diagnosis of CUP, the cancer yes, of unknown primary? Yes, in my opinion, yes. Okay. I personally believe that all patients whose cancers can't be or weren't cured by the surgeon, with or without some drugs trying to help the surgeon, should be sequenced. Because if you give therapy like chemotherapy right away when the disease comes back for the first time, or you give that to a patient whose disease has already spread and can't be operated on, you don't know what you're working with. You don't know what your cancer's uh, story is. You don't know whether it's a, just a tumor driver that's an oncogene or just a tumor suppressor that's a failure to put your foot on the brake or a combination of more than one of them. And if you learn that in the beginning, that information can be very useful of what to do right in the front, what to do if that, when and if that stops working, and what to do as the second one. It helps you make a plan with your doctor. It's what to treating do. the disease as a science um, rather than as a art. Um, you need to know what you're dealing with, I believe, to get the patient the best possible outcome. And that's especially true for lung cancer and colorectal cancer, um, breast cancer that's relapsed, prostate cancer that's relapsed. Um, it doesn't help all cancers equally. Some you find many ways to treat the disease in an individual way, and others you don't find as much. Lung, for example, is very often got an individualized pattern ahead, way more than half the cases. But cancer of the pancreas, a very lethal and alarmingly increasing cancer type, relatively rarely has a, uh, when we be talking only 10 to 20% of pancreas cancers, we can help this way. But 50 to 75% of the lung cancer patients, we can help this way. Wow. Now, is this sequencing, how is, is that done through surgery or biopsy? How do you So you, you need get very you need? little of the patient's cancer to do the sequencing. And if there's any problem with getting that, uh, danger to the patient, uh, we can also get it from a blood test. And that's called the liquid biopsy, meaning instead of taking a piece of tissue with a needle or having to put the patient to sleep and operating to get it, we just draw blood and sequence the DNA in the blood, which may or may not have 
circulating cancer cell DNA. It may be only normal white blood cell DNA, but until we do it, we don't know. And that has to be analyzed at a special lab? It's analyzed in a special lab in the same way that the DNA sequencing from the tissue, the tumor tissue is analyzed. It's the same essential process, but the blood needs very many specialized procedures to make it work because you get a tiny amount of cancer DNA in a, in a blood draw compared to the amount you get from a tissue extraction. We'll be right back with more from Dr. Jeffrey Ross on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Jeffrey Ross about the modern era of cancer treatment, which is more and more often including tumor DNA sequencing. So I wanted to ask you about what is done in the lab once you have the DNA sequencing, you report those findings back to the provider, the doctor, right? Yes. And um, based on what you find, that helps them decide which type of treatment, which personalized treatment might be best? Yes. It's very interesting how this is really evolving almost on a daily basis because bigger and bigger databases are growing to not just list a cancer type with the mutations that have been found, but also link it to the treatment that was selected and how the patient responded, whether that be long-term complete response, which is what we always hope for, or no response whatsoever, and all of the different response categories in between. And as that database grows, doctors, when they get the results back from their own patient, will have the opportunity to query that database with what we call patients like mine. How many patients with this cancer type, with this mutations, were treated with this drug, this drug, this drug, and this drug? And which patients did the best? Which patients lived the longest? Which patients had the fewest relapses? And I want to learn that for my patient before I select what therapy I'm going to, going to recommend. And I think patients like mine is the future. How those databases are used and how the access is decided still being developed. But it will allow, whether you're a university academic oncologist at Upstate uh, Cancer Center, or whether you're in a smaller rural community and uh, an oncologist practicing in private practice with, who will get access to the same kinds of data and information and hopefully to the same drugs so that a patient can get that same standard of care treatment whether they're in their home small community or in the larger urban environment where there is academic cancer centers present. So I know it depends on the type of cancer it actually is, but what are, what are a patient's odds today that a, a DNA sequencing of their cancer will reveal something that will be useful in guiding their treatment? That's a wonderful question, and it's an important question, and it's an answer that's almost changing day by day. Um, so if we talk only about this million or so Americans with relapsed refractory cancer, that is, in other words, progressing, and the last therapy didn't work, and you do the DNA sequencing to look for new therapy targets. When I was asked this question five years ago, I said it 
probably can only change the treatment with a hope for a better outcome, maybe one in five, maybe about 20% of the time. Today, I'd say 40% of the time, at least. And the reason for that is, in addition to the targeted therapies we talked about earlier, is the whole new field of immunotherapy. And immunotherapy attacks the cancer in a very different way. It's not with about drivers and oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes. It's about how do we maximize the patient's own attempt to treat their cancer by rejecting it like it was an organ transplant given to them by somebody they don't know, meaning have their own immune system attack their cancer to try to destroy it. And for years and years, we hoped this would work, but couldn't find any examples where it really did until, oh, just about 2015, when the first major studies began to show that immunotherapy could have a dramatic outcome in malignant melanoma, and then lung cancer, and then urinary bladder cancer, and on and on. So we do have tests doing DNA sequencing that helps decide who's more likely to benefit from these, unfortunately, very expensive immunotherapy drugs more than those who are unlikely to benefit. So I see the future as the DNA testing both helps decide who should get targeted therapy, who should get immunotherapy, and who should not get immunotherapy so that we don't spend the money where it has no chance to help and don't create new side effects that we don't want the patient to experience. So between targeted therapy and immunotherapy, now I think um, using the DNA sequencing, we can customize the treatment and improve the outcome in at least 40%, so 400,000 Americans every year. But we have to sequence everybody, all 1 million, to know which 400,000 we can help now. Okay. And hopefully the other 600,000 has the chemists and research at the pharmaceutical industry keep working, they will come up. It's not that we don't find targets. We don't have drugs for them yet, but we may have drugs for them next year or 10 years from now, and then it'll go to 50% or 60% and keep, keep, keep expanding. Well, you just listed some cancers, malignant melanoma, and several of them that have really dire prognoses at this point, but some of these therapies are changing that? Oh, in a massive way. I mean, metastatic melanoma today um, can be overcome and converted to a chronic disease in many, many, many patients whom we lost rapidly just 10 years ago. The targeted therapies and the immunotherapies for melanoma are extending the lives of patients with metastatic disease by extraordinary lengths. Some patients are going into complete remission. We can't detect the melanoma, even though it was in their brain or it was in their lung, anywhere. And they're living happily. Many times they have to stay on their drugs, their inhibitors. Uh, they can't go off the inhibitors. We don't think it's safe or we're not sure yet. Um, and in the future, we'll learn how long they need to be treated. But we're saving the lives of melanoma patients. I mean, they're living out their regular lifespan where they used to die of it. Not everyone but a significant percentage. So the big question, does insurance, health insurers, do they pay for DNA sequencing? So for the most part, yes. I, I mean, for Medicare beneficiaries, uh, sequencing is covered and reimbursed in full. Um, for private insurance covered patients, it's insurer by insurer, but there are certain types of drugs 
and diseases in which the sequencing is mandatory. So if you have lung cancer that's relapsed or not cured, curable by surgery, there are DNA sequences of certain genes that must be done for the standard of care, and the insurance will pay for those. But when you get to tumor types in which the sequencing is not yet got, approved drugs for the mutations, then it's a you know possibility, but most of the time, yes, the sequencing is paid for. Now, the drugs are not always paid for when they're not on label. So we have lots of drugs that are approved for mutations um, in one tumor type, but not necessarily in another, because when the drug was first developed, it was only developed in lung cancer or only developed in breast cancer. But we have hundreds and hundreds of examples when the mutation is present in a different tumor type, it's just as sensitive to the treatment as if it was the original tumor type. Maybe we're going to see some of the approved drugs go back and convert from a one cancer only type approval to an all cancers with this mutation approval, which we call pan-cancer approval. We've had two of those um, in the last two years approved by the US FDA and now we wonder whether some of the approvals in lung only, for example, will become pan-cancer, you know, in the very near future. In general, in my experience, private insurance and Medicare is paying for a lot of these really known targetable mutations, even when they occur in off-label indications, meaning a lung mutation that's known to be very sensitive to treatment has occurred in a colon cancer. And the doctor wants to treat the patient as if it was a lung cancer. Most of the time, that's being approved. Are there clinical trials um, using some of the existing drugs for other types of cancers? That yes, there, there, there are hundreds of them. The pharmaceutical companies want to expand their label beyond, so they're trying their approved drugs for one cancer type in other cancer types. Then you have the rare cancers. They're very rare one at a time, but if you combine all people with rare cancers, they become a pretty insignificant cancer. So for rare cancers, you can't do a traditional trial, which we call an umbrella trial, in which everybody with the cancer gets sequenced, and then if they have the mutation, they get the drug, as opposed to the what we call the, the basket trial. In the basket trial, all of these rare cancers are put together into the trial, whether they start in the head and neck or in the chest or in the abdomen, no matter where they start. They're into the trial, and then they have the sequencing done, if they have the target mutation, they stay in the trial. If they don't, then they're out. So then the trial, the umbrella trial, doesn't do it this way, but the basket does. So then the target of the trial isn't lung cancer or breast cancer or colon cancer or stomach cancer. The target is KRAS mutation or the target is uh, EGFR uh, mutation or HER2 amplification. It's a genomic alteration that's the target not the cancer type. And that's how all the rare cancers get into these molecular yeah, clinical trials. So it's a whole different way of looking Completely at different cancer. Way. We haven't looked at it this yeah. way until now. And, and especially now that two drugs have achieved uh, you know, pan-cancer approvals, one immunotherapy and one a targeted therapy, it's changed the landscape. Um, and the drug developers and their regulatory teams of hundreds of thousands of people working towards regulatory approval 
now see a different way to go. Do some patients get recommended for both immunotherapy and targeted therapy? Yes, but it's very complicated. Um, firstly, the safety of using both at the same time is not well known for a oh. lot of the combinations. So many oncologists feel it's safer to do them sequentially rather than simultaneously. Okay. And then comes the question of, well, then which do you do first, the immunotherapy or the targeted therapy? That's particularly important in melanoma, which can have a very high, uh, what we call mutation burden and lots of likelihood of immunotherapy benefit, but also have a mutation in a gene called BRAF and be a target, 50% of them, for drugs that target BRAF mutations like the uh, uh, RAF-inhibiting drugs and the MEK-inhibiting drugs. So which do you give first, the immunotherapy or the targeted therapy? And most oncologists in melanoma are tending to favor the immunotherapy first, but some prefer the targeted therapy first. But everyone is a little leery for giving the both at the same time. So what is your advice then for someone who learns they have cancer but it's unclear where it began? that they should seek medical care at an institution and with an oncologist who believes that knowing what's driving their cancer is far more important than continuing to try to look to where it started since that's not going to lead to a specific treatment. Meaning, tell your doctor, I want my cancer cells sequenced so you'll know what kind of unknown primary cancer I have and whether I could be treated with a targeted therapy or an immunotherapy instead of the one-size-fits-all chemotherapy that I've read is not very effective. So does that mean um, coming to an academic medical center or a specialized center? This doesn't sound like the type of thing that a, a family doctor would be able to offer in their office. No. You need specialized. But, you know, there are a lot of places, there are academic centers that, in my opinion, are not up to the state of care and will wait for the full approval by the National Cancer Comprehensive Network before they'll change what they do. In other words, they want to be led to that decision whether, rather than they want to lead others to that decision. Other sites are, yes, the university uh, um, uh, academic cancer centers, but also there are places like Cancer Treatment Centers of America, which is you know a for-profit you know cancer network, but they know that doing cutting-edge state-of-the-art approaches to the cancer is how they get their patients, so they want to do the state-of-the-art. You just want to know that you're going to get your cancer molecularly characterized before they start treating you, um, and that will really help. We have a trial called the Capisco trial. It's an international trial that's going to sequence over 900 patients with CUP and see whether or not doing that and putting the patients on individualized treatments based on the results of the sequencing will give them longer lifespan, uh, longer time before their disease comes back uh, compared to the standard of care, one size fits all, give them chemotherapy. And, uh, the trial is now more than two years old. It's accrued already 300 patients. It's probably still, unfortunately, about two more years before we'll have enough data um, to be able to look and see whether there's a difference. But 
Um, I'm very confident it's going to prove this is the way you should do it, and this will get your patients the best possible outcomes. Well, this has been very educational and very important information. I'm glad to have you here. Dr. Jeffrey Ross is the Jones Rohner Professor of Pathology and Urology at Upstate and the Medical Director of Foundation Medicine in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, adaptive design in Ecuador. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A group of people from Syracuse recently traveled to Ecuador where they helped to improve the lives of people living with disabilities. Here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio to tell about the trip are physical therapist Aaron Wentz from Upstate and adaptive design program coordinator Connor McGow from the nonprofit community organization Arise. Welcome to both of you. Thank you Thanks. for having us. Glad to be here. Let's begin uh, with a description of what adaptive design is. Connor? So adaptive design is creative problem solving in action. So what we're doing is we're developing uh, these adaptive products for individuals with disabilities, um, but we're building it out of everyday items readily available that are low cost. Um, So things that could be found at your uh, local hardware store, Um, and are really able to be found kind of all over the world, uh, which is the really interesting part. Um, These aren't pieces made from real expensive uh, equipment or materials, Um, and and it's all primarily hand-built. We do some uh, computer work, but it's a lot of hand-building, and it's working with individuals um, and addressing their needs specifically to what could make their life more fulfilling. Because you would look at the individual, the, the disability that you're trying to assist with, right? It'd be different for each person. Correct. Perhaps. Yeah, it's very unique to the individual. Um, so we're working with the individual, um, and we, we like to create a team um, from the individual. So if we can, if they're available, um, not just the individual who has a disability looking for a piece of adaptive equipment, but their family, uh, friends, physicians, therapists, anyone that um, might be wanting to become involved and has uh, a good understanding of that individual uh, that can help uh, us build the adaptive product and help drive what that product's going to look like, um, what that individual specifically needs. And and they know better uh, of the individual, um, who they are, uh, what they need, what they like versus us. So we like to bring in that team if possible. Um, So what, what sorts of things get built? So uh, quite a range, but um, a lot of adaptive products. Uh, so things we do a lot is uh, seating uh, for children that uh, have seating needs. Uh, we do um, early childhood mobility equipment, so uh, allowing them to be able to be moving around in space uh, if they you know, maybe can't afford a wheelchair um, or just one doesn't fit them right, uh, standing frames. Um, a lot of splinting material. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite a range of different items. It's so, really unique. Like I said, whatever that individual comes in with, with their need, 
we'll address that and try to solve it in whichever way we can. It sounds like it takes a lot of creativity to look at the problem and figure out, okay, what's how could we solve this? What materials could help us? Yep, and we, we try to stick to a specific set of materials. Um, one really unique one is cardboard, actually, which we use quite a bit. Um, and like cardboard for a regular box? Yeah, just mm -hmm. like you'd find in your Amazon box that comes to your door. Um, ours is a little different in that it's a lot thicker. So your average box that you'd get a ship uh, shipment to your house in is about a single wall cardboard. Um, ours is typically triple wall. So it's a, about half an inch thick and it adds a lot more strength and durability to it um, in that way. And we're fortunate to get that donated um, from a couple of companies in town and, um, and we can really manipulate that material in a bunch of different ways uh, to address different needs. And it's strangely enough, very, very uh, structurally durable. Um, it does, uh, if positioned properly, um, it's able to hold quite a bit of weight, uh, more than an individual would think. Um, and then it can also be, uh, you know, if a mistake's made, it can be patched up, it can be added to, parts can be taken away. And it, it's very fluid. Um, in the building process, which is why it's such a great building uh, material. Well, interesting. Well, let's talk about this trip to Ecuador. Dr. Wentz, you you sort of organized this? I did. So when, when I came to Upstate, one of the things that I felt strongly about was to have a global service learning program. Um, and the purpose of that is to expose the students to different ways of life, um, to different healthcare systems, not just so that we can go there and help them, but also to help us with our clinical decision-making skills as upcoming physical therapists um, and seeing a problem from a unique perspective because it's obviously different um, in many ways in different countries. And... Um, working together with the in-country families and therapists and coming up with, similar to adaptive design, unique um, solutions to their um, specific problems. So how did you choose Ecuador? So we, Upstate already had a existing program with Ecuador and they, so our global service learning department hooked us up with um, Sedei, which is the company that we work, it's a nonprofit in country in Ecuador. Um, and they had never done doctor of physical therapy students before, but they were willing to take us on. So um, the program is still um, fluid and evolving. Um, so we are working with different organizations and we make it like a little bit different each year to come up with the best itinerary for our students and for our community volunteers. So this trip in particular made sense to pair with people from Arise? Right, because we have, or Adaptive Design has a sister organization in Ibarra, Ecuador, Adaptive Design Ecuador, and um, I think Connor can tell you more, but they had a relationship um, that was technologically based before. So, yeah, if I jump in there. Um, so the summer before, uh, we collaborated with a program, uh, Protesis in Barbara, which is one of the sister adaptive design programs uh, developed from, just like ours was, uh, a program in New York City, 
which is the Adaptive Design Association. Um, and they initially, when we first got started, came up, trained us in the skills and how to build adaptive products. Uh, they did very similar uh, in Ecuador. Um, so under the guidance of uh, Bob and Kit Frank uh, at Protesis in Barbaro, that program has been running for about, I believe, 12 years now. Um, so we wanted to see uh, specifically with uh, spina bifida what similarities and differences there were in each culture. Um, so we paired up and kind of did yeah, a technological um, collaboration project over this past summer um, with them and, and built a bunch of things here um, for individuals in our community as they did there. And then we kind of compared notes on uh, what was built, what the needs were, um, any differences. And uh, it just made sense that when we, uh, and we collaborate with uh, some of the students uh, in Upstate's uh, physical therapy program. So when we heard that they were gonna be going to Ecuador, um, we had the chance to tag along. Um, it made a lot of sense for us to, to combine our efforts and um, join up and, and meet up with the uh, great people down at Protesis in Barbara. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with physical therapist Aaron Wentz from Upstate and adaptive design program coordinator Connor McGow from Arise. So what did you learn during your visit to Ecuador? Uh, I'll jump in first. Uh, the, the healthcare is very different there. Um, and it's a public healthcare. Everyone has it. Um, some of the needs aren't met, though. Um, there isn't as much money in the healthcare system and some of the more advanced needs um, aren't able to be met. Uh, one thing for, uh, for instance, a lot of wheelchairs that an inv individual might receive there is just your basic kind of hospital wheelchair. Um, and it's not really suited to fit everyone to their specific uh, size. So that was one thing uh, that we saw down there that we don't see as much here is a lot of um, seating adaptions to properly fit individuals in their wheelchairs. Um, especially children. So a lot of opportunity for ad adaptive devices Absolutely. to make those. And that's what's great about this process is the materials and the technique we're using can be uh, implemented anywhere pretty much in the world. So they have all these same materials that we're using, just basic glue, um, like Elmer's glue that you would use, um, some wooden dowels, cardboard, and some cutting tools, whether it's a razor blade, a jigsaw, or just a general steak knife and you can build this equipment. Um, again, it, it follows a certain technique, but all the, all the, uh, the process itself can be the same and the materials can be the same wherever you go. Um, so it, it worked out um, really well in that similarity that we were able to translate what we're doing here down there and vice versa. Um, so, Dr. Wentz, did you notice any similarities or differences in the cultures? So, in general, Ecuador is a developing country. And so, um, like Connor says, they have public health system, but they also have a private aspect of it, too. And less of the population um, is um, lucky enough to have access to that. So, especially in the more rural areas... Um, which Ibarra is more rural, and the clients that we were interchanging with at um, in Ibarra was were more rural, lower resource families, and so, like Connor said, they don't have access to a wide variety of medical equipment, um, 
they the equipment that they do have access to maybe ill-fitting like Connor mentioned so we did have a really nice opportunity um, to work together with adaptive design professionals and our students in looking at kiddos that um, wouldn't have otherwise have access to the kind of equipment they needed and um, trying to prepare using these inexpensive materials equipment for them. Well, let's talk about the types of projects that you're doing here in Syracuse. Sure. Um, so like I mentioned before, uh, we have some really basic uh, low cost uh, equipment that we build. Um, so rockers, uh, which is a, a seated device for children that may not be uh, able to bear their own weight yet and start crawling or walking, but we want to get them used to exploring movement um, and somewhere where they can sit where they're comfortable and the parents don't you know, have to worry what if they're uh, getting into something or uh, uncomfortable. So these rockers, uh, they're kind of shaped a bit like a jelly bean. Um, <laughs> they have a unique shape, uh, but the child is able to sit there comfortably and we can adjust the seating however needed to, to be specific to their, um, their body. And then they can you know, start exploring cause and effect and pushing with their legs and moving um, with you know, limited force needed. Um, and they can slowly build up the, the muscle and, and, uh, and that can provide against tone building up. So um, that's one. Another, uh, we've done some standing frames uh, for individuals to start you know, working on being upright, bearing their own weight, um, which is really helpful against osteoporosis and just socially too, just to be upright, looking at their peers um, and playing as well. So. so how would someone who's interested in receiving an adaptive device request one? So you can get a hold of me um, at Arise. Uh, they can call Arise or um, myself specifically. Uh, and my number there uh, is 315-671-5104. Um, they can also email at cmagow, that's C-M-C-G-O-U-G-H, at ariseinc.org. And we'll also put a link to Arise on our website, healthlinkonair.org. And if I can jump in again, um, just some of the other items, because that's uh, more the, the low cost, but we are doing some more technically advanced items as well. Uh, and one would be uh, the early childhood mobility. So we're taking things like power wheels and we're adapting those for children that might not be ready for a power wheelchair yet, but we want to get them used to that. Uh, the function uh, functionality of a power wheelchair and how to maneuver it. Um, so without having to spend thousands and thousands. And uh, a lot of people don't know this, but when you're receiving a chair through insurance, they'll only pay for one every five years. So children grow rapidly in that period of time when they're young. So it doesn't make sense to have to buy one that's going to be so much bigger and, um, and won't fit the child correctly uh, and just have them grow into it. Um, so what we can do is we can build one. Uh, pretty affordably, and uh, and outfit it correctly with the light, right electronics uh, for them to use uh, in the meantime. And then we also have a 3D printing program where we actually design on computers and CAD um, splints and different adaptations that we can then 3D print out of different plastics and resins. Are you looking for volunteers or sponsors for this program? We're absolutely looking for sponsors. Um, we are a nonprofit, so. Uh, we're only able to do this if we have the funding. Uh, so corporate or private 
um, individual sponsors are very welcome. Um, again, uh, donations can be made at the Arise website uh, or just a call to Arise. Um, and volunteers, we are primarily volunteer-based. Uh, myself and one part-time fabricator are the only hired staff, actually. The rest is all volunteer-based. Um, so, again, feel free to reach out to me if you're interested in volunteering for something like this. Let me let listeners know, too, they may hear some snoring. And I'd like to introduce another guest, um, Topper, who's six. Connor, can you tell us about her? Yeah, Topper is my service dog who's joined me here today. Uh, we go everywhere together, all day together. Um, yeah, so Topper's, uh, I'm in a wheelchair. Uh, I have quadriplegia, so Topper's always by my side to help me pick up items that are dropped or open doors, hit buttons, carry things. So, yeah, she's a great partner. She's enjoying a bit of a nap. <laughs> Thank you so much to physical therapist Aaron Wentz from Upstate and adaptive design program coordinator Connor McGow from Arise. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Some of our most visual and poignant poems are those describing family members. Here are two from our latest issue. First is Jeremy Gadd from Australia. Here is We Were. We were orange and apple, yin and yang, chalk and cheese as children, quiet to your loud, near to your far, circle to your square, sharing only unruly hair and shelter from the storm of parental repression and mutual amusement at our teenage indiscretions. But now, more bonded in dying than in life by a genetic disease, we share more laughter than depression, more love than any previous sibling aggression. Zoe Fitzgerald Beckett is from Maine, and she takes us back and forth in time to pay tribute to sister's love. Here is Sleeping With My Sister. We were sleeping together again, rain drumming on the roof, rain and tears and torrents, and the salt and sweat of love's labor to save her, to vanquish all fears and the monster growing in her brain. Our childish fears often drove us both out of bed in the past, her fear of everything, my fear our parents might disappear. We'd meet in the dark and cling together, crying and comforting in whatever bed would have us. Our grown-up fears were in bed with us that night, silencing the hard questions. What is her brain tumor doing? Is there nothing left we can do? Truth vanished to the darkest corner. No answers but the drumbeat of rain on the roof. She was the beauty of the family, the baby sister who followed me everywhere. Sure, I knew everything. She always asked, where are you going? Can I come too? I'd say yes, sometimes, or no, leave me alone. That night I prayed, don't ever leave me. The rain was slowing, her voice a drifting mist. She said, listen, it sounds like music. What does it mean? Knowing nothing, I could only ask, what? She said, the back and forth, the back and forth. And I could only whisper, oh pioneer, Oh, dear heart. This is 
has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, are you addicted to your smartphone? If you missed any of today's show, listen on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Mm-hmm.